0: Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. Hi, I'm Jake. We're releasing a bonus episode this week about the Grand National Peace Jubilee held in Copley Square in June of 1869. The Peace Jubilee was a week-long musical celebration of the Union victory in the Civil War. It was a concert of unprecedented scale, performed before an audience of up to 50,000 in a purpose-built coliseum in the Back Bay that was one of the largest buildings in the world. People came from far and wide to take in the spectacle, including President Ulysses S. Grant and many other dignitaries. The climax of the show was a piece by Verdi called The Anvil Chorus. Jubilee director Patrick Gilmore conducted 10,000 vocalists who were backed by 1,000 instrumentalists, a battery of cannons, a convocation of church bells, a custom-made bass drum 8 feet in diameter, the world's largest pipe organ, and a company of 100 Boston firefighters carrying sledgehammers and pounding anvils in unison. To help celebrate the 150th anniversary of this musical spectacular, the associates of the Boston Public Library are throwing a party at the Copley branch of the BPL on March 29th. Nikki and I will be giving a brief talk discussing who Patrick Gilmore was, how he conceived of the enormous Coliseum where the Jubilee was held, and what the concert was like. Boston's Poet Laureate Portia Aliawola will give a reading, and the keynote address will be delivered by Theodore C. Landsmark. The highlight of the evening will be a musical performance by a brass band from the New England Conservatory of Music, featuring some of the same arrangements that were performed in 1869, complete with firemen hammering anvils. If you'd like to join us at the BPL on Friday, March 29th, make sure to pre-register by going to associatesbpl.org pierce that's P-I-E-R-C-E, or hubhistory.com slash jubilee150. The event is free, but you do have to pre-register to get in. Doors open at 7 p.m., and the program begins at 7.30. There will be a cash bar. Our description of the Grand Peace Jubilee originally aired as Episode 102. Take a listen.
1: In the 1850s and 60s, Boston undertook an unprecedented infrastructure project. We first created an industrial lagoon out of the tidal Back Bay, then decided to fill in the increasingly polluted lagoon and create a new residential neighborhood. As the tidy street grid was laid out, the streets were filled with sand and gravel to a level of 18 feet above low tide in Boston Harbor. Since the homes that would be built between these streets would all need cellars, the building lots were left at a lower level, filled to 12 feet above the low tide line. When we used to give tours of the back bay, we'd pause at one of the few spots in the neighborhood where you can still see the difference between the level of the streets and the house lots. To illustrate what it would have looked like at the time, we used a picture that was taken just outside Copley Square in 1869 or 70. It shows the high streets and low building lots in a waffle pattern. Every once in a while, one of our guests would point to the giant building in the background of the photo and ask what it was. So, what was it? It was the Boston Coliseum, otherwise known as Jubilee Hall or the Temple of Peace. When it was built in 1869, it was one of the largest buildings in the world. The Coliseum was enormous, a wooden building with plentiful windows. From a distance, it would have looked like a long, low rectangular building with a gently pitched roof. Up close, you would realize that the scale of the building prevents it from being considered low. It was over a football field wide and almost two football fields long, 350 by 550 feet. Within its walls, four and a half acres of land were enclosed. That low, gently sloping roof actually soared to a peak of 120 feet above the ground. Depending on which source you believe, Construction took somewhere between 2 and 3 million board feet of lumber, between 28 and 40 tons of nails, and 25,000 feet of gas pipe. There were 144 windows, 48 water closets, 12 grand stairways, and the whole thing was topped off by 7,500 pounds of paint. The end product was a vast concert hall that could seat up to 50,000 people. For comparison, the concert capacity of the TD Garden is just under 20,000. This enormous edifice stood on land that was newly filled in the back bay and not yet auctioned off as building lots. It was built for a grand national peace jubilee held in June of 1869.
0: The organizer and conductor of the jubilee, the projector as he called himself, recalls what it was like at the moment that huge hall burst forth in song from the mouths and instruments of an unprecedented musical assemblage. The first peal of the organ was the signal to the chorus and orchestra to prepare. The 10,000 singers arose, and the 1,000 musicians placed their instruments in position. All eyes were now directed to the uplifted baton. Chorus, organ, and orchestra were to come in fortissimo at its very first move. For a moment, all seemed hushed into breathless silence. Then, in the name of God, the wand came down, and the grandest volume of song that ever filled human ear rolled like a sea of sound through the immense building. Grander and grander came wave after wave, now loud as the roar of the ocean, now soft as the murmuring stream. Oh, how beautiful, how pure, how heavenly! What sublime chords, what ravishing harmonies! That's right, for the first piece which was the hymn we now know as A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the projector was conducting a 10,000-voice choir backed by an orchestra of 1,000 instruments. The overture from the Wagner, or, for our listener Peter's sake, Wagner opera Tannhäuser followed, backed by a mere 600 musicians. Then came two pieces by Mozart, before 2,500 basses sang the Star-Spangled Banner with the full chorus of 10,000 singing the final notes together.
1: After a brief intermission, things got even more dramatic. The second act opened with a hymn of peace written for the occasion by Oliver Wendell Holmes, then the William Tell Overture, which you might better remember as the Lone Ranger theme. Sometimes in modern performances, the William Tell is punctuated by cannon fire. In the performance of the Jubilee, no such theatrics were added, yet. After pieces by Rossini and Meyerbeer, the climax was planned for a piece commonly known as the Anvil Chorus by Verdi. That's how dramatic it sounds when performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, a normal orchestra. Imagine how it must have sounded when played by 1,000 instrumentalists, sung by 10,000 vocalists and backed by a battery of cannons, a convocation of church bells, a custom-made bass drum eight feet in diameter, the world's largest pipe organ, and a company of 100 Boston firefighters carrying sledgehammers, pounding anvils in unison. A contemporary account describes the effect. Filing in two by two, 100 helmeted, red-shirted Boston firemen strode to the stage, each shouldering a blacksmith's hammer. Then, in two rows facing the auditors, they struck on cue, right, left, right, left. The cannon, in two batteries, ignited on the first beat of every measure. Electric signals sent from a small table on the stage ensured flawless synchronization. The enthusiasm of the crowd was frantic. Fans, hats, parasols, even babies were waved aloft. The firemen marched out, and back in again, to encore the entire number. That was the first night of the five-day run of the Grand Peace Jubilee, which was intended to celebrate the peace and reunification of the United States after the terrible toll taken by the Civil War. After President Grant and his entire cabinet took in the show on the second day of the Jubilee, reporters asked him what his favorite part of the concert had been. Grant replied in a loud tone that suggested that his ears were more attuned to the chaos of the battlefield than the subtleties of the concert hall, saying, I like the cannons.
0: The presence of Grant and other members of the Republican Party as well as the seemingly overt celebration of the victory of the Union in the Civil War, made the Peace Jubilee more politically controversial than you might guess. With the White South undergoing Reconstruction and being forced, for just a few short years, to share power with African Americans, things apparently didn't feel so peaceful below the Mason-Dixon line. Here's how a Democratic Party newspaper in Ohio with strong Southern sympathies put it. Peace Jubilee. The mongrel party has had what they call a peace jubilee at Boston, the hub of the universe. Over a 100,000 people were called there to hear and see. It is said that there was no limit to the attractions. Grant was there, and eat fish with his imperial friends. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were squandered in getting up the notorious humbug, the peace jubilee. They shouted, sang, and made huge noises with anvils, cannon, and musical instruments, all in a mockery of the woes of the nation at this time. Boston, during their peace jubilee, spit upon the miseries of the people of the South and upon those of other parts of this once happy country. Get up a peace jubilee when there is no peace. A peace jubilee when the nation is smarting under the most unrelenting war upon its best interests, which wicked rulers ever perpetrated in the history of despotisms since the world began. Yes, a peace jubilee in New England, whose heel is today on the neck of the South, trying to crush out its manhood, and endeavoring to degrade it by foisting its own Negroes upon the white people as equals. Nine millions of white impoverished into starvation, their political rights wrested from them, and their own ignorant slaves made rulers over them. As a side note, if you think that was crude, just know that we cleaned up the worst of the racist language that appeared in this front-page editorial. But just who was this mysterious projector who had dreamed up the largest musical spectacular the world had ever seen? Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore was born in Ireland on Christmas Day in 1829. By the age of 16, he was playing cornet part-time in a band while working in a brewery in Athlone. At 18, he joined the military and served in Canada for a year, performing with the military band. When his service was over, he emigrated to Boston which was known as one of the centers of musical life in the U.S. at that time. He led a series of increasingly prestigious concert bands before volunteering with the 24th Massachusetts Regiment for service in the Civil War. Before the war was over, he'd have a chance to put on a musical spectacular that gives us a taste of what was yet to come. He was summoned to New Orleans, where the leader of the occupying Union forces asked him to lead the festivities as an unpopular, anti-slavery Republican governor was installed as described by Dr. Stephen L. Rhodes in A History of the Wind Band. On March 4, 1864, at the request of General Banks, Gilmore oversaw the music celebrating the inauguration of Governor Michael Hahn. For the event, Gilmore created a grand national band consisting of 500 army bandsmen plus additional drum and bugle players. He also organized a chorus of 5,000 children. In addition to many other patriotic tunes during the last number, Hail Columbia, Gilmore shot off 36 cannon by electric buttons from the podium. As the cannon fired methodically in time with the beat, the bells from the churches and cathedrals throughout the city chimed to create a most spectacular effect. It was a sensational event, on the order of something Julian would have conceived, and undoubtedly whetted Gilmore's appetite for similar events in the future.
1: Patrick Gilmore seems to have had a taste for excess in literature to rival his desire for excess in music. His book, A History of the National Peace Jubilee, in which he describes the planning and execution of the 1869 Jubilee, runs to over 700 pages. On page 2, he describes how he was struck by the concept of the Jubilee seemingly out of the clear blue sky. In June of 1867, Mr. P.S. Gilmore was passing a few days in the city of New York, and it was at this time that the first thought of a national jubilee to commemorate the restoration of peace throughout the land flashed upon his mind. The carrying out of the idea, he well knew, would afford an opportunity for the grandest musical festival the world had ever known. The scenes with which he was then surrounded immediately lost their interest, And he became absorbed by the grandeur of his conception. The general plan of the scheme, as afterwards adopted, seemed at once to unfold itself. Indeed, had the scenes of Broadway been instantly changed by the wand of a magician, they could not have been transformed into a series of more enchanting, dissolving views than were they vividly portrayed to him like a panorama of the coming event. A vast structure rose up before him, filled with the loyal of the land, through whose lofty arches a chorus of ten thousand voices and the harmony of a thousand instruments rolled their sea of sound, accompanied by the chiming of bells and the booming of cannon, all pouring forth their praise and gratulation in loud hosannas with all the majesty and grandeur of which music seemed capable." As his imagination reveled in the scenes his thought pictured, every nerve quivered with the intensity of his delight, and he was impressed with all the fervor of religious belief that it was his special mission to carry out the sublime conception. With almost prophetic instinct, he felt at the time that it would take two years to realize the full development of this inspiring vision, and in some degree, The final success of the Jubilee may be attributed to the fact that he kept secret these first impressions of the project. By
0: 1869, Gilmore was already known for putting on large-scale concerts every year on Boston Common for the 4th of July. In an early version of the Jubilee plan, he meant to build the venue for his 1869 extravaganza right there on the Common as well. Those rumors inspired this March 1869 letter. Sir, We have read with surprise and awe your proposal to hold a peace festival on Boston Common and forward you this, our protest. We place our objections on the following grounds. First, in building a coliseum such as you describe, by building a board fence 11 feet high entirely around the Common, you would be confining the Common to a very limited space. It would naturally chafe under this restraint as it has been accustomed to roaming around at its will. Second. The four ladies and gentlemen who now occupy the position of watchers at the base of the Brewer Fountain should be considered. It is not using them with gentlemanly consideration to thus debar them from their view of park and Tremont streets, which is the only recreation they enjoy. This your board fence would do. We started to have some doubts about the letter with this next paragraph. Third. Serious fears are now entertained that the fountain on the frog pond would overflow with indignation at this act of tyranny and it is very evident that the frogs would suffer no small inconvenience from the danger of being bailed out with Jeff Davis. They are not generally croakers, but we think their objections in this respect are very laudable. Fourth, not only would it make bald-headed places on the grass, wear out the seats, rub the paint off the fences, and crowd the flagstaff, but such a large number of persons must necessarily carry off large quantities of gravel upon the soles of their boots. These, our valid reasons, do we thus lay before you, feeling sure that they carry conviction with them. We consider the common holy ground, and the time is most assuredly coming when no one shall be allowed within its hallowed precincts. It pains our heart's core to see the thoughtless deers, as they frisk and gamble over its surface, and we considered it a just retribution that the bear, who temporarily there did dwell, destroyed one of these wicked creatures in the midst of its sin. No, oh no, not the common, anywhere else, but do not insist upon the common. We objected to new thoroughfares, free churches, horse cars, constituent water, the widening of streets, but the rash and impetuous freebooters who composed the rising generation would not listen to us. But the time is coming. The time is coming. Let us hear from you at an early day, and that you will accede to our request, is the prayer of this petition. Yours respectfully, signed, A. Fossil, You Will Be Cussed, You Are A Wretch, O. Foggy, O R U sane, A. Moldy Pate, and 49 others. If you ever listened to Car Talk on WBUR, that list of signatories could be taken straight out of the Car Talk credits. If you hadn't already figured it out, those names make it clear. The letter is satire. It was addressed to Mose Skinner in a publication that's kind of a 19th-century version of The Onion.
1: That letter may be a phony, but there were similar editorials in Boston's real newspapers. One from the Boston Daily Advertiser on January 19, 1869, reads just like more recent objections to the plan to build an arena for beach volleyball on the Common if Boston had been forced to host the 2024 Olympic Games. Earnestly concurring, as we do in the general hope that the project for a national peace festival next June may move steadily and prosperously onto a complete success, we must endorse with emphasis the suggestion already made in our columns that the Common is not the proper place for the contemplated Coliseum. The Common is an inheritance— needing to be guarded with the most constant and the most jealous care. Improvement assaults it on one side, while enterprises intrinsically worthy of the hardiest support threaten it on the other. The citizen who appreciates the full value of the treasure which the wisdom of our fathers left us, a treasure for which New York or Chicago would give millions were it attainable, has to be constantly in arms against the insidious attacks of projects like these. And now that the integrity of the common as a common is menaced by an enterprise which otherwise demands all his public-spirited assistance, he must redouble his wariness and fortify his conservatism with new resolution. We need hardly urge any further argument then that the rule against the admission of structures of any kind to the common is inflexible and cannot be waived even upon an occasion so extraordinary as this. It may be claimed that the building proposed is only temporary. Time must be employed to build and to destroy, and the portion of the common so unlucky as to be selected will thus be taken from its public uses for an indefinite period, and left in no condition to be immediately available again. But we trust no such step will be hastily taken, and we have sufficient faith in the elastic ingenuity of the manager of the national concert to know that he will find a way to carry out his plans to victory, even if the use of the common is denied him.
0: For good or ill, Gilmore was getting news coverage, but he had no funding, and no venue for the spectacle he had imagined. A 1969 article in American Heritage magazine describes the point at which Patrick Gilmore's luck began to turn. A number of thousand-dollar pledges rolled in, principally from hotel keepers, music publishers, and others who stood to benefit directly. The school board agreed tentatively to allow 20,000 children to sing as a feature for one day only, and an ironmonger offered to furnish 100 anvils, free. But this was hardly a drop in the financial bucket, and public interest remained low. Gilmore pleaded with Boston's builders to supply lumber and workmen and to wait for their pay from ticket sales, but the builders had little faith in that. Three promoters set out to sell $50,000 worth of tickets in a month for a 5% commission, but gave up in disgust after three days. Gilmore next tried to persuade each local lumber dealer to contribute a part of the building. No luck. He campaigned through the state, asking each town to send a volunteer corps of Civil War veterans to contribute one day's work. Nothing doing. But at this point, he got a big break. Boston's leading merchant, Eben D. Jordan, head of Jordan Martian Company, had been watching Gilmore with mingled admiration, wonder, and the realization that a successful jubilee would be mighty good for Boston business. Early in March, Jordan agreed to help organize the National Peace Jubilee Association and to be its treasurer. That did it. Top businessmen and bankers were quick to join the executive committee, and they agreed to underwrite expenses from their own pockets to be repaid from seat sales. The site of the Jubilee was changed from the Common to St. James Park to quiet the back bay set. As funding and construction began to come together, Gilmore was able to focus on the program. There would be a prayer by Edward Everett Hale, an opening hymn of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a hymn of peace to be written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, then a traditional repertoire of classical music. The climax came with Verdi's Anvil Chorus, where we opened. One account says that an audience member was so overwhelmed by the experience that he ran to the lobby and sent a cable to his wife saying, Come immediately. We'll sacrifice anything to have you here. Nothing like it in a lifetime. The first day, the Coliseum was packed nearly to capacity for the curiosity of opening night. On the second day, dignitaries like President Grant and Senator Charles Sumner attended. On each of the three subsequent days, the crowd numbered near 20,000. Perhaps the most amazing accomplishment of the Jubilee beyond the anvil chorus of the enormous Coliseum was the fact that it made a profit. The box office brought in about $290,000, with expenses running to $283,000. The city of Boston was so grateful for the tourist business the event brought in that it threw a special benefit concert, featuring performances by many of the musicians who had played the Jubilee. It brought in about $32,000. The benefit money and the profits from the Jubilee went to Patrick Gilmore, giving him the small fortune of $39,000, which would be over $700,000 today.
1: Because the Coliseum was designed as a temporary structure, it was supposed to be torn down by November 1, 1869. But before that day came, a great gale blew through Boston on September eighth and severely damaged the building. Photos show gaping holes in the walls and most of the roof blown away. More debris fell down when Boston was shaken by a moderate earthquake on October 22nd, and it appears that the building may have been put up for auction as salvage. In the meantime, Patrick Gilmore took his family on an extended European vacation, using some small fraction of his Jubilee earnings. They got there just in time for the outbreak of the Franco Prussian War. While the brief war didn't have much of an effect on most Americans, Patrick Gilmore saw an opportunity, and he seized it. He came back to the U.S. proposing a new peace jubilee. This time, it would be more than a grand national peace jubilee, it would be a world peace jubilee, and everything needs to be bigger for a world jubilee. He proposed a chorus of 20,000 voices, an orchestra of 2,000 instruments, and a coliseum that would hold 100,000 people pretty much the 1869 Peace Jubilee times two. The new Coliseum was again built on unsold lots in the newly filled Back Bay. It faced Dartmouth Street near the corner of Yarmouth, occupying nearly exactly the footprint of today's Copley Place, which houses a Marriott Hotel and upscale shops like Neiman Marcus. You may have noticed that we didn't give an exact location for the 1869 Coliseum there are a few accounts that say that the original Colosseum was in Copley Square, where Trinity Church is now. However, most sources agree that the first Colosseum was also constructed on the same spot as the second. In fact, they say some of the remains of the original building were incorporated into the new Colosseum, when plans had to be scaled back after a structural collapse during construction. The World Peace Jubilee debuted on June 15, 1872, and was planned to run for 18 days. Along with the musical assault that Gilmore had planned, audiences were also treated to some of the best European concert bands. London's Grenadier Guards came dressed in red, gold, and bearskins. The band of Lagarde Republican came from Paris. The Prussian Kaiser sent the Kaiser Franz Regiment Band along with his household cornet quartet. Along with the bands, the famous composer Johann Strauss was convinced to come to Boston to conduct a newly composed waltz. It was probably the $20,000 fee that convinced him. Strauss also reflected on the experience of conducting Gilmore's spectacle of a musical assemblage, and he sounds less sublime than Gilmore had three years earlier. On the Musician's Tribune, there were 20,000 singers, in front of them the 2,000 members of the orchestra. A hundred assistant conductors had been placed at my disposal. I was face-to-face with a public of 40,000 Americans. Suddenly, a cannon shot rang out a gentle hint for us to start playing.
0: This new jubilee was not the runaway success that the first one was, as that 1969 American Heritage magazine article notes. Although Gilmore scored another personal triumph, this second festival, running from June 15th through July 4th, 1872, was disappointing artistically and financially. The size of the crowds fell short of expectations. So did some of the performances. Various disasters dogged the enterprise. There were instrumental troubles. The giant bass drum, 21 feet in diameter, was so huge its head would not vibrate properly. It was hung on the wall for show. The immense organ required so much pressure that the engine powering the bellows gave out. Apparently, the World Peace Jubilee was just too big to be practical, and it lacked the spontaneity and enthusiasm of the first. Nevertheless, the European bands made a big hit. They created a splendid show each day by marching in uniform formation into the Coliseum. And they sounded, many people thought, a lot better than the 26 American bands. Dr. Stephen L. Rhodes puts it more charitably, saying, The superiority of the Europeans' musicianship provided the Americans a standard for which to strive during the next decades. This second Jubilee seems to have finally satisfied Gilmore's drive to create grand musical spectacles. In his later years, he focused on creating a touring band, as described again by Dr. Rhodes. Eventually, Gilmore's band was considered without peer in America, if not the world, and engagements were plentiful. By 1880, a typical year's engagements consisted of a summer concert series at Manhattan Beach, winter concerts at Madison Square Garden, formerly Gilmore Garden, and tours during the fall and spring under the management of David Blakely. Through his nationwide tours, and he was essentially the only touring band of the time, the general populace not only enjoyed the popular music of the day, but were exposed to the music of European masters. Where else would they hear the music of Wagner, Liszt, Mendelssohn, Berlioz, Rossini, Verdi, and more? Gilmore's library had amassed 10,000 pieces, and he employed two or three men to write new arrangements for the band. It was said that the players were so accomplished that they could read many of the most difficult arrangements at sight without the need for rehearsal.
1: The Peace Jubilee had one final hurrah in Boston. The first Grand National Jubilee was a moving tribute to peace after our Civil War. And the later World Peace Jubilee was, at least on the surface, meant as a celebration of peace after the Franco-Prussian War. But the 1889 Grand Anniversary Jubilee Was a celebration of nothing but nostalgia, marking the 20th anniversary of the first jubilee. Here's how American music preservation describes it. This festival was to celebrate the anniversary of the National Peace Jubilee 20 years earlier, and like that one, this grand anniversary jubilee took place in June. The dates were June 5th through 9th, 1889 at the Mechanics Building in Boston. The performers included a 1,000-voice chorus from Boston choral organizations, a reunion jubilee chorus of 1,000 voices, and a children's chorus of 1,000 voices from Boston public schools. The opening concert on June 5th began with the overture to Richard Wagner's opera, Tannhäuser, by Gilmore's band and included Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, and closed with the patriotic song, My Country Tis of Thee. Patrick Gilmore's own final hurrah came on September 23rd, 1892. The band was on tour in St. Louis, and after directing the concert that evening, Gilmore retired to his hotel room. He died the next day. As his coffin was carried to the train, his band followed along, playing Handel's Death March in a sort of classical version of a second line.
0: To learn more about the Peace Jubilee, check out the original show notes for this episode at hubhistory.com slash 102. And if you want to join us at the library's 150th anniversary commemoration, go to hubhistory.com slash jubilee150 or associatesbpl.org slash pierce. Thanks for joining us for this special bonus show. We'll be back on Sunday with a new episode.